Well, thank you, and you may take your Bible and turn to Genesis 6. And we're looking at, in a series of demons, the domain and the domain of darkness. So what do you do if you were facing imminent danger? You're walking down the street and you see somebody that wants to uh, rob you and your family. Or you uh, suspect somebody's trying to break in your house. We do several things, but one of them is pray. We, we don't have to be told to pray in times of grief or fear. We just pray. Maybe a short prayer, but we do it. Well, we live in imminent danger. And the danger that we and our family face that we cannot see with a natural eye so far surpasses in evil intent, power, deception, everything than what we can see. If what we can see causes us to be alarmed, we ought to be able to see by spiritual eyes what the Word of God tells us and be overwhelmingly alarmed. I'm not talking about praying out of fear. I'm talking about praying out of faith, trusting that what God has said is what's actually going on. In our study of angels and demons, we've just seen there's this entire world, if you will, or universe of conflict by beings that are so far superior to us in speed and intellect and power, and then those that are fallen in destructive desires and abilities. So I've said it many times, but Satan's desire is to kill, steal, and destroy, so why are you and I still here? Why is your family here? Why is this church here? Well, in the scope of things, we can say, God, yes, but remember, he has created so that there are there were angels, some fell with free will, and now there is this conflict going on between angels and demons in the heavenlies, and we've seen that. We've, we've looked at it. And so there's wars among men, but remember, involved in all of those, orchestrating and many times starting them are demons, and there are demons behind governments, and there are angels fighting to bring purity to these governments and there are demons trying to take them to be worse and they're trying to do that with individuals and with churches and denominations and all kinds of things. So to see the, 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 the danger of this drunk driver and you've got to get around him and you see that danger, God help me to get around him safely and we ought to be praying for that which we cannot see. God, protect me from what I can't see. Because 
That's where the real power and deception is. And even when human beings are being used, oftentimes they're being used by Satan and his emissaries. So that's one of the practical applications of what we're learning in this passage in our host study. But, and I've given you some others. I'll give you more as we go along. So I, I said I believe that the sons of God are fallen angels. They are demons. And they cohabitated with human women and brought about an offspring that is a hybrid, angelic human offspring. So what's going on here is not just the evil, not just the sin, though that is is so prominent. It is the war that began when Satan said, I will ascend to the Most High God. Remember the five I wills we studied. When he fell. So he's always about that agenda. That's always going on. And there are minor things happening that are not minor maybe in our life or the church life or the country's life, but on the scheme of things, it's minor because it's always about him being God. So the race, he created this race, this hybrid race, and it was about defeating God on two fronts. It was about defeating God on two fronts. Remember, Satan would prove, number one, that he was God. He created a race. Who else can create a race? This wasn't procreation. This was creating a race. And that's what God did. He created the human race and the angelic race, if you will. So he would prove that he was God by creating a race. And there were two characteristics of this race. Number one, they were immortal. So he took humans and bred them with angels, and so they would be immortal in Satan's mind and eyes. The second thing is that was about this race was it was unredeemable. It was unredeemable. Because remember, we talked about the kinsman redeemer and, and the blood of bulls and goats can't wash away sin of human beings. It has to be a human sacrifice for a human. And so this race would be unredeemable. So he defeated God in proving that he was God if it was successful. And the race is immortal and unredeemable. And that, so this is the ultimate way that would defeat God is it would thwart his redemption plan. And look how close it got. Eight people were saved out of multiple millions, and we don't know how many, but multiple, multiple millions, just based on mathematics. Eight people, one family. Everything hinged on that. That's how close he came by 
And I, and I don't believe God's going to be defeated. I don't believe he can, so don't do that to me. I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to bring us to the point of understanding how far advanced this was. I mean, the flood didn't just happen because God didn't have something else to do. Or that he's got this mean streak in him. This, this was one of the most pivotal times in human history that is going on what we're studying. And, and, and the reason it's important to us in our demon study is because demons are behind all of this stuff, you see. It really is an angelic war that's come down to earth. And so it would thwart God's redemptive plan. Why? Because the race would be immortal and the race would be unredeemable. It's a hybrid. So it would thwart the plan of God that he would send a redeemer, remember in Genesis 3.15, in its seminal form, after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised a redeemer. And then that is the most prominent theme through the rest of the scripture other than God himself. And Satan came along by the time we get to chapter 6, and he's going to thwart that promise. There will be no redemption. So that's one thing. And the second thing that he would do in this is prove that godhood is achievable. Godhood is not innate. It is not a uniquely essential property of deity. But it is something that can be achieved. And so he would be achieving it, creating a race. But remember... It would be showing also that he and mankind, the fallen demons, can live independent of God. So that's what it was all about. Godhood's achievable. I'll be like the Most High and an independent existence from God. We don't have to have you. That's what the temptation was in the garden, and it's the temptation to this very hour. It has not changed at all comes in different forms and flavors, but it's always the same thing. You can live without God. You don't have to believe in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be saved. You can take care of this. It's the same thing that happened when he chose to sin. So that was what was going on here to prove that he's God. He created a race. Godhood is achievable and the race can live independent of God. We don't need you. And so it passed through everything and ultimately got down to these eight people. So the problem with Satan is that he heard, but he didn't learn. And John chapter 6, verse 45, it says that God teaches all and those that hear and learn come it's the learning that Satan didn't get and so many others so don't be mistaken God can counter anything Satan does but Satan believes that he can outpower God he always has and I believe he does until that time that he's cast out of heaven and he knows his days are short that's the first time that we have this that I know of, this de de declarative statement 
that he's perfectly aware that time, his time is almost up. So he, at stake was the human race, the redemption plan of God, and if that failed, then that would be a slam against God, and then God himself. Because if you can become God, then God is not unique. Everything was at stake. And the demons were fighting with everything they had. So we're very familiar with Hitler and, and Mussolini was right with him uh, on these uh, views and so forth of, of fascism. And, but, but Hitler was uh, attempting to create this superhuman race and it didn't just exclude Jews but it excluded uh, feeble people uh, mentally or physically. In other words, if you had any inadequacy in you, and, and he talks about this in Mein Kampf, then you were excluded too. So, so various races other than the Aryan, but the Aryan had to be top-notch. And what happens in these kinds of things, if you, if you look at uh, other parts of history, and you can even know a little bit about human nature, and that is, he started getting rid, of course, the Jews, they were the worst. But he got rid of others as well. But what happens is, if you move along the continuum of making the perfect race, you know what happens, don't you? That the, the smaller enfeeblements become prominent, and we get rid of them. It's just a refining and a refining and a refining. So he actually was trying to bring about a, a superhuman race. He went through seven countries very quickly, nine countries before, his, uh, before he was stopped. And he did it very quickly. He surprised people. He, he went into Russia. He did conquer part of Russia that you don't hear about sometimes. But on the Eastern Front, he had three million troops, and he was making deals with Stalin, but they were both lying to one another. And so the, so the point is, through fascism and the Third Reich, it was to create this pure race, pure race. And he went really far. The progress he made is almost unimaginable. And it was very, very close to having moved through conquering the island of England. And if they would have fallen, uh, I, don't, I don't really know what would have gone on with the U.S. and all of that. But just imagine, had he been successful, I mean, we can't even imagine the world we'd be in. But I wouldn't be speaking English, I can tell you that. And so it would be all about the superhuman race. Communism is the same way. It has a utopia. So we believe in utopia, that God will bring about a utopia, which is heaven. But in communism, it's man bringing it about through communism. But it's still the utopic vision, and everything is compared, and everything is done according to that. So you say, well, under this person under Mao or Stalin or, or uh, uh, Pol Pot, millions and millions died. That's, that's not much when we're talking about getting to utopia and 
billions of people will enjoy. You see, this is, this is the mindset that they have. <clears throat> Churchill said, when, when we're fighting the Third Reich, he said that communism was a greater threat than fascism. And fascism was threatening the world. But the reason he said that was is because communism is more alluring. Communism says we're all going to get along, we're all going to have the same. Um, Parcusa says take the hours you work and the hours of leisure today, that's going to be reversed. You're going to have far more leisure. You're going to have everything you want. There's no worry. There'll be no more war. You see how alluring? That's why 25 or 30 percent of young people are socialist in America, they claim to be. Because it's just alluring. Fascism doesn't have the allure, and so he thought it was more dangerous. When you think about what's going on here with the angels and the change of this nature of human beings to make this new race. Herbert Marcuse, who's one of the most prominent, he's dead now, I think he died in about 1970, but one of the most prominent uh, Marxists of the 20th century, and his writings are still some of the most prominent of the 21st century. And he came over from Germany when the Third Reich came in and the Frankfurt School came over here and settled in some of our universities and brought their stuff. He's one of the ones that stayed. A number of them with the Frankfurt School went back after Hitler fell. But what he recognizes is that there's a problem, and you can see it in history. Every time uh, that communism is implemented, so capitalism is destroyed. You have a people that are living under capitalism and you destroy it to bring in communism, which they believe is really good. But the problem is a whole bunch of these people that came out of the capitalist system, they don't like it and they fight against it. So what do you do with them? Well, you kill them or you send them to the gulag. That's what you do. That's the only way to solve it. And they say that we, the problem is we're too, those in capitalistic systems are too aggressive and too independent. So the way they've handled that historically is, again, send you to the gulag. And the gulag was a prison, there's no doubt about it, but it was really a place of mind change. Change your mind about communism and we'll let you out. So Marcuse has tried to address that problem in how do we transition America, particularly, that's where he is, but all Western capitalist countries, how do we transition America to being Marxist because these people are so independent, they're so aggressive, because see, you can't be aggressive in communism. If you are, we'll kill you, like, the, like Stalin did the kulaks. He gave them a little bit of freedom to be capitalist, and some of them really did well too well, so he killed them, stole what they had made. So Marcuse is trying to address that issue. What do we need to do so that when we do take over, we don't have to kill all these people or send them to the gulag or something? So listen to what he says. Now we're talking about in modern times. So we're studying way back here, but we're talking about in modern times. 
It follows that the radical change, and by the way, when he talks about a free society, they're always talking about communism. So they say, we're going to make a free society, and you think, that's what I want. No, it's communism. These are euphemisms. So it follows that the radical change, which is to transform the existing society into a free society, must reach into a dimension of human existence hardly considered in Marxian theory. The biological dimension in which the vital imperative needs and satisfactions of man assert themselves. Inasmuch as these needs and satisfactions reproduce a life in servitude, meaning these desires, these needs, these interests, all of this is what keeps us in servitude. You see, when you say you like a capitalist country and you don't want a Marxist, that's because you have a false conscience and you're in servitude. So that's what he's saying. When they take us into communism, we have all these biological and we don't know whether he really is talking about psychology or biology, but you understand in the very nature of us are these things. And he's saying that's what we have to change. As these needs and satisfaction reproduce a life in servitude, liberation, becoming a communist, presupposes changes in the biological dimension. That is to say, different instinctual needs. This is at the basic level of what it means to be a human being. You say, well, we need love. No, you don't. Well, we need family. No, you don't. They need to change all that. Different reactions of the body as well as the mind. So whether he's talking about biology or psychology, it's really hard to tell. They're very difficult to read. But I would say he's, he's got both in mind. So what he's saying is, rather than take these Americans and our capitalists from anywhere and force them into communism, and then the ones that fight against us send them to the gulag or execute them, we're going to do it a new way. We're going to go in and change their biology and their psychology so that they actually are not aggressive, not independent. They like this. Does that sound scary to you? I mean, this is a worldwide faith, if you will. And this is the way they're thinking. Well, what's so scary about it is is where we are technologically. And I don't know how AI fits in this. And by the way, you know, whatever it is, generally there's a good and a bad. Television, good and a bad, right? Internet, good and a bad. Medicine, good and a bad. Magazines, good magazines, bad. It just is. It's just the way history is. And if you look at anything that's happened, it's never purely good and purely bad except Christ. It's just, you, you just have to realize that when somebody just focuses on the good or the bad, uh, they might need to think a little more. So I don't know how AI fits in. I don't really understand it that much. I do remember the, or I have studied the eugenics movement. And that was about doing the same thing. And a name that they used all the time was the enfeebled. And that meant not only physically, but financially. 
if this group tended to be poor, well, we need to get rid of them or change them physiologically, mentally. This is where abortion came from, by the way. It was a part of the eugenics movement because we've got these people we really need to get rid of because they keep having families that are poor. And if you were poor, there's something wrong with you. The Bible never presents that, but that was a part of eugenics. If you were poor, there's something wrong with you. And so they had fairs all over the country. Oklahoma had them. And they held up the model family. And this is what we were to strive for. Now this wasn't like Ozzie and Harriet. This was biologically what they were doing and psychologically. So apparently it's that kind of thing. So then that brings us to the, so I just kind of gave you a little Hitler and communism and eugenics and things like that have always had this idea of we can perfect the human race. Well, Genesis 6 was before that. In the ancient writings we talked about there, we saw that of the Greeks and the Romans and Persians and on and Babylonians, there were gods who cohabitated with women. And I, I do think in some of these things, mythology and so forth, there are some elements of truth. And so we, we use the flood, the Babylonian, the Gil, Gilgamesh epics, uh, the Babylonian writings, and they talk about the flood, and other nations do too. And when you compare it with the Genesis account, the Genesis account, like the boat was floatable and stable, and the one in the Babylonian account was not. So, it, so it's like the Bible corrects a lot of these things, but it doesn't say they didn't happen, you see. You get the straighter version. So that makes me come to the time of Christ. And you had the Romans and the Greeks, generally speaking. You had the Jews, but they were just a subset under these great, great empires. And at the time of Christ, you had the, the, Gre the Grecian Empire had fallen to the Roman Empire. But when empires fall, our countries take over, you don't lose everything. The, the thought patterns merge with the new. In other words, it doesn't one day, nobody's thinking Greek, nobody's talking Greek, nobody goes that place, they all, now all of a sudden they're this. It merges and, and morphs and changes. So at the time of Christ, the Roman Empire was in power. And, you know, we watch these shows and the, there is some glamour to it seemingly and on and on. But remember, Julius Caesar massacred one million people and it was seen as good. It was a good thing. You understand what a different moral that is than you have in the West and the reason you have a different one in the West is not because of Rome, not because of the Ottomans, but because of Christianity. We go to war and millions die. We're never happy about it. On our side or their side. But that was celebrated in the time of Caesar. It was patriarchal in the sense that the patriarch decided everything in his clan. He decided who lived, who died, when they died, how they died, whom they married, when they married, sexual activities, 
were across the board. And so you might like the opposite sex, you might like the same sex, you might like both, none of that really mattered, it just mattered that you liked it. And so that was the world of the early church, and the Corinthians, of course, were Grecian. So you had a mixture of Greece and Rome mentality and culture of the people being saved beyond the Jews. And remember, the Jews by this time were having serial divorce. All the man had to do is say, I divorce you, three times, and it was over. The woman could not divorce. It was a far cry from the way that God had set it up. The patriarch decided whose wife would be for the son and whose son would be for the wife. You know what all of that was modeled off of? You study their mythology, their gods. Their gods were immoral. They were power-hungry, self-centered, and immorality and sexual things are prevalent. It's possible that some of that started back in Genesis 6. It just gets distorted. The gods did not necessarily marry or do anything of it appropriate. In Genesis 6, we have the angels who do not marry in heaven, but they did here. They took wives as they wanted. These did as they willed. They created a hybrid race. Same thing in Greek mythology and Roman mythology. So what happened in the New Testament? The New Testament era changed a lot of things. But one of the things that changed was marriage had more romance. Because the girl was choosing the guy and the guy was choosing the girl and that just concept's really romantic. You do remember, don't you? When your relationship was romantic. You tried to woo them impress them. Is your hair all right? Is, how about these clothes? How do you look? What about the car you're driving? All of that. That was there. It was all of a sudden this romantic thing. And remember we studied the, the marriage about, you know, having to go back to the father's house and wait and she was waiting on him. It was just this full thing of romance. None of that was essential. It was just romance. Go get your bride. And she's waiting for him. So when you come to Ephesians, and by the way, in 1 Corinthians 5, where they had this guy living with his, uh, probably his stepmother, and it was very immoral, and Paul said, you know, they don't even do that out there, but they do everything else. But notice, they weren't getting rid of him because it wasn't really a problem. So what we sometimes think when we study uh, Corinthians or Ephesians, uh, Romans, we think, they think like us. No, they don't. You and I have been in this, in this stream of Christian thought that's been going on for 2,000 years. So everything we do and think has some kind of Christian origin to it. They didn't have that. So when they said, you need to get rid of this guy, they're thinking, what? Get rid of somebody? It didn't make sense to them. 
Because the emperors did it, the people did it, the men did it, the women did it, everybody. That, that in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. It's very difficult to comprehend that today, nothing like it was then. Because at least we have some concept. They had no concept. They, they didn't have a framework. Love your wives like Christ. What are you talking about? Monogamy. They had no concept of that. In 1 Corinthians 7, he said it is better to marry than to burn. Meaning, if you have sexual desires and you can't control them, get married. Notice that it was consensual. In chapter 5, verse 33 of Ephesians, the husband's to love his wife and the wife's to respect her husband. It's consensual. That's the whole romance. And you know that like in India and Islam and all of these other places, that that's missing in the sense that it's the husband choosing the wife and the wife choosing the husband. This whole dating and romance thing that came about in the New Testament. So when they heard these things, when they saw the gods doing this and hearing the gods, this is the way they lived. This is what they thought. And the gods were power hungry. They were self-centered. They were narcissist. They were sexual uh, uh, renegades. Everything was okay. So that's the people that got saved. And Paul says, love your wife, only one wife. The elders, you have to be the husband of one wife. What? Nobody does that. We have no people who can be elders. Then we have to raise them up. I'm just telling you, we are so saturated. And so sometimes we forget all of this, that they grew up in this situation that was far more ungodly even than ours. But they had the gods that were doing what the gods, what the angels did in Genesis chapter 6. So I want to now read verse 5. That was the introduction. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, just, I just don't want the Bible to be this thing that's out here and we can't integrate it into where we are and how it has been and how it is. And this isn't just some story that has no relevance to us today. It is very much our life today in the spiritual world. So in verse 6, or verse 5, I'm sorry. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only continually, or was only evil continually. So two things I want to point out there is you have the each individual and you have uh, the longitudinal. You have, he says, 
the wickedness was great in every intent. So each intent. Whether he intended this or intended this or intended this, mankind, it was always evil. Always evil. Every one of them. And then it says, and his heart was only evil continually. So every intent that he had was evil, and, and his heart was continually evil. There were no times of goodness. This is what the world does when it becomes evil, and this is evil today, and then they want more and more and more and more. And again, it's the old thing that if you tell your child you, you can only play out here in this square in the backyard, they will do it, but you'll look out the window and they'll be right on the line. And one of them, the daring one, will cross the line, come back, cross the line. So finally you talk to your spouse and you say, well, you know, maybe we should give them more space. They keep kind of getting out of that one. So let's just make it bigger. And they're so happy. But before long, you see them on the line. Our society, in a more complicated way, that's where we are today. People that have been alive for 50 years, they cannot believe it compared to where we were. Even though that was evil. And it's interesting to read the preachers of the past. And they, they are appalled at the evil and the wickedness of the world. And, on and, and we're looking back going, whoa, if you'd have been here, you might have died on sight just seeing it. But that's the way it is, isn't it? it it's, it's relative to where you are. And so what they saw was evil in comparison to when they started, and then the next generation, next, and so here we are today. So that's an important concept that every intent of the thought, every thought, and his heart was continually evil. Skip down to verse 13. This comes a little later, but it sums it up. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. Now, if you can read that and not see the emotion and sadness of God, you're not paying attention. It is a verse of pathos. Even verse 5 is. It's not, I don't read it as just declaring it or condemning I see it as the loving creator who created his people to be fruitful and multiply, and he created them pure and holy and to enjoy him and enjoy all that he's given. And now he must look down upon that and see that every intent of their thought is evil. And the creation I created to be pure and was pure is evil thoroughly and continually. And so then God had to say to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. There's no other way. There's nothing else that can be done. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. Notice where the violence is coming from. Them. The wicked heart. The earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold. Behold is something that 
is a warning, is, is to alert you. Behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. I mean, it's just a moment of solemnity, solemnity. And we're going to talk about whether God hurts when his creation does. We're going to talk about that. So if you have questions thinking about, well, can God be affected by what we do? And so we will talk about the delicacies of that. But properly understood, you can't read this without seeing God's pathos. God's looking at the race that he created pure, and they are so impure now that the only way to solve the problem is to destroy them. The creator will destroy his creation to save his creation. Free will is good, but it's been used for evil. It was wickedness and it was thorough. So demonic activity is always thoroughly wicked. And man, we say, does things called civil good, not righteous good on his own as a fallen being, but civilly good. Demons don't do that. All of it's for total deception. So that brings you to verse 6, which I'm not going to start. It's the cliffhanger. But it talks about God repenting. And so what that means is pretty important to understanding God, to understanding the demonic world, to understanding the creation of man, and to understanding redemption and sin. So we will look at that, but what I don't want you to leave, verse 5, is I don't read it as just stating a fact or calling the judgment at that time, but it is God who created his people pure, holy, to enjoy, and he's looking at them and they're so thoroughly wicked, thoroughly uh, sinful that he has to destroy his entire creation except for eight people to save it. That's the sadness, I believe, that God feels. The sadness of seeing what mankind has done to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, just the warnings we find, the insight into the world that we live in. It's not only the world we see. If we only deal with the world we see, we are no different than the lost people. Well, that's what they deal with. Not even recognizing that the real power is emanating from and being exercised in the world of the unseen that that we can only see by faith. And Lord, we do also see here that one of the great examples of what demons and Satan will do fully unleashed and bring everything to destruction 
not just to take people to hell, not just to destroy people, but to prove that He is God. It is achievable, and this marvelous created being that you created superior to all others became sinful and prideful, believing that because of his superiority in every way, he could even surpass you. And Lord, we know that's not going to happen. He's wrong on every count. But God, we do get a glimpse at the torment and the horrible damage that he inflicts before he will really know the truth. And so we pray. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Lord, give you a great week, and we'll look at that next week, uh, verse 6.